Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 15th, 2023, uh, Wednesday. I'm talking to you as always from San Francisco. One of the nice things about this podcast, the Keenon podcast, I talk to a lot of authors, and one gets a sense of the narrative of their lives from their books. It tends to make sense. And then sometimes uh, the narrative of my subjects, my guest life, and the subject of their book are more intriguing. Uh, today we're talking with a man called Ben uh, Dramalingam, who is a very distinguished uh, English humanitarian. Um, he currently is in charge of the UK Humanitarian Innovation Lab. Um, he's about, I think, to move to the uh, British uh, Red Cross as their strategy director. Um, he's been involved with the Humanitarian Futures Program. So he is a man who's dedicated himself to making the world a better place. His first book was Aid on the Edge of Chaos. Uh, it was a bestseller on, on Amazon. And as one would expect from the kind of life he's led, it was a book about um, aid, uh, to uh, societies which are less fortunate than our own. He has a new book out this week, and I'm very intrigued because, in a way, it's not a book I would have expected of a man like Ben. Uh, the new book is Upshift, Turning Pressure into Performance and Crisis into Creativity. It sounds like more of the kind of book one would have got from someone at a business school or someone from corporate life. So I'm intrigued uh, as a kickoff question to Ben, who is joining us from Brighton uh, in the United Kingdom. Ben, why the book? Does it, it, it doesn't make sense, or maybe I'm being um, unfair to you. Does it make sense in terms of your career or does it? Um, I think it does, um, but I don't think you're being unfair either. I think it's a good question to I um, started off researching this book um, in my work in disaster response. And I was particularly taken with the fact that the old proverb, necessity is the mother of invention, was in most of the dis disaster responses I'd worked on, at best incomplete, and at worst, completely untrue in a considerable majority of situations. And what I observed time and time again is whenever people face urgent necessity, all other things being equal, it's, it's much more likely to lead to conventional approaches. And I observed this over many years in crisis responses. And at the same time, in these crisis responses, I noticed a few bright sparks in every disaster where invention did indeed happen. And so uh, the, the, this adage, necessity is the mother of invention, uh, uh, was only true in very particular circumstances. So I set out to explore in my own setting of disaster response, my own sector, when did this actually hold true? When were people able to convert extreme necessity into invention? And I, I start off by talking to disaster responders and essentially asking a very simple question. When did you face your, find yourself facing crisis, facing disaster, facing pressure, and you did something or your team did something or your organisation did something that you were surprised about? led to positive benefits. 
And I started to unpick these different situations in crisis response, which led to a whole area of work around humanitarian innovation, which I now now is a mainstay of my work. But I then started to actually explore the same questions in other settings outside of the humanitarian sector. I started off looking at it, all, all sectors where, um, to, you know, to put it kind of slightly facetiously, where, where um, every day is someone's worst day. So situations like emergency surgery or the fire service or the police, where they're like my own sector in rapid response. And then I'd started to look at other settings, space travel. Uh, I started to look at global medicine. I, I looked at performing arts and creativity. I even looked at things like the daily commute, and I found these same patterns that I'd identified in crisis responses sprang up time and time again. And this, the book is essentially a treatise of what, you know, if necessity is the mother of invention, what are the midwives? Yeah, uh, I'm always under pressure, Ben, particularly with the the technological challenges of being a podcaster. Your audio is dipping in and out. Uh, I'm not sure how... I would turn pressure into performance and crisis into creativity. Are you using a mic? I am. You can see here. Oh, good. You're using a. You're using a. A, a yeti. So perhaps if you can just talk into that. That's my. That's my lesson from Upshift. Tell me a little bit more about your work, the kind of work you do, Ben. Uh, your pin tweet, for example, uh, features. Um, uh, something about a, a six-month process of dialogue and research on international engagement in Afghanistan. What have you, well, what does a, an ordinary day look for you at the UK Humanitarian Lab? The UK Humanitarian Innovation Hub, we, we do two big things. One is we, we try and invest in scientific and technological solutions to the big problems of people facing crises. And we try and invest in areas where the potential solutions can save or positively benefit a million lives or more around the world. So let me give you an a very concrete example. At the moment, global war surgery is undertaken by two main organizations, the Red Cross and MSF. And, and the total number of operations that are undertaken around the world each year, some, somewhere in the region of 250 to 300,000 operations undertaken by those two organizations globally. But the caseload of a need for war and crisis surgery exceeds two to three million. So there is a shortfall there of some, at least something in the region of 2.75 million re operations that are going unmet each year. And this was pre-COVID. So we can't radically change the, the way in which surgery is delivered without innovation. And part of what we are trying to do in that, in that setting is change the, change the nature of surgical care providers so that uh, midwives, GPs, general, ma uh, general medical practitioners can be trained in surgical operations, simple ones, basic ones, and be skilled up in those. So they're, they're able to do them when and where they're, they're, most, they're most needed. And that will address the shortfall. Now, that means innovations in how surgeons learn, how they share their knowledge, how people share knowledge in crises. It can mean really cool and dramatic things, sounding things like people using WhatsApp to do digital scrubs before they go into surgery in a war zone. But it can also mean things like, you know, rather more uh, dull sounding things like um, online courses for people be 
four disasters here, so people can get skilled up um, using using a range of different training tools and learning tools before the crisis. So we're, we're investing in innovation in global surgery in order to save lives around the world. So that's an example of what we work on. I'm also working on things like um, investing in satellite technology for disaster responses. So, we, so we've got these a portfolio of different innovations. That we're so, so, Ben, uh, explain, coming back to your new book, Upshift, Turning Pressure into Performance and Crisis into Creativity. What have you learned from the crisis management uh, of your humanitarian work uh, that will educate people outside the sector? Well, you, you mentioned surgery or police or disaster relief of one kind or another or even our day-to-day -day lives as commuters and as parents and as friends and as children, what, what are the, the, the lessons, the broader lessons of Upshift? Sure, well, I guess the first and most basic one is, is that we often think that stress is always a bad thing for us and that too much stress is going to be too bad for us. But I, and, and this is actually true, but our, our performance beyond a certain point when we get stressed, we get overloaded. It's hard to organize our thoughts. It's hard to gain control of the situation. But the reality is too little stress is no good either. Below the threshold, we quickly become disengaged, demotivated, and unfulfilled. And one of the key lessons I've learned from disaster management is that there is a Goldilocks zone between cognitive overload and cognitive underload, where stress is neither too little or too much, but just dry. And it's the zone of optimal performance. It's the zone of upshifting where we have enough pressure and stress to keep us on our toes, but not so much that it becomes overwhelming. Now, this is something that performers, you know, think about creative artists. Or yeah, I'm thinking about sports people, a tennis player. Sports uh, people, people that play, uh, you know, people that perform regularly on stage. If you give keynotes, I know, I know that you give speeches. Um, uh, There's feeling that you get before you step on stage. I think that that... that you will know what it means to step into the zone and get into the zone. But it's something that I don't think people in day-to-day -day lives always think about that, that optimal point of how they can actually manage stress in their performance. And I think we can all learn to reach be better reach and maintain optimal performance under pressure. And that, I think, is the fundamental lesson. It doesn't matter what it is we're doing, whether we're, you know, I'm the son of a 12-year-old boy, he's a you know, almost a teenager. It's an ongoing engagement, uh, ongoing yeah. lesson. Uh, your book seems, Ben, quite timely in an odd way. The issue of stress, you've got a 12-year-old, and my kids are slightly older, but it seems as if they're much more stressed, much more. And, and maybe life is more stressful, or maybe life is perceived as being more stressful. Do you see a, a generational element to your argument in, in Upshift? It, it seems as if, in particular, my daughter's generation, people in their early 20s and late teens, not only feel enormously stressed out, but hate stress, want to, um, want to liberate themselves from it. Uh, and uh, I guess from your book, you would suggest that's not particularly wise either. Well, I think, I think the, what we have to accept that for that generation, especially your daughter's generation, early 20s, that when COVID hit, they would have been 18. And so that they, the point at which they would have experienced, should have been experiencing a huge amount of freedom, moving, moving away from home, experiencing a whole range of things. They were essentially in lockdown. 
And so I think they had a different kind of experience of growing up, which they are trying to liberate themselves from. And they are also, in a, in a sense, overloaded. You know, we are all overloaded from the last three or four years. And there's a, there's a lot of residual stress and baggage that we're still carrying with us individually and institutionally. And I do, I know I see it in my 12-year-old in the way, you know, a, a certain level of deep cynicism about the way the world is and the direction that it's going in, having seen COVID and the climate crisis in Ukraine and and I think I'm seeing amongst 12-year-olds the kinds of cynicism maybe you would have expected amongst 18-year-olds in the past. So I, I do think there is a generational dimension. I do think that we need to um, share our experiences more. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the avoidance of stress is necessarily the best thing to do. But, you know, there's some really interesting research that's been done, for example, that shows that our perceptions of stress have a greater bearing on our health than... than you know, actually monitoring how people feel about stress. And that, that has a huge implication on whether or not uh, we are healthy in, in the long well, term. Well, I, I know this might seem a, a bit of an odd question, but what exactly is stress? It's the sense of being, uh, it's the sense, I guess, physiologically, the sense that we are um, being pushed beyond a certain level of coping. So, it's a, it's a level of stimulation. It's a level of um, uh, it being you know, the, the, at a chemical level. It's, it's um, having a certain level of amphetamine and adrenaline and certain transmitters being kicked off in the brain. But essentially telling you that you are um, facing some form of threat. And, and is it rational? The, 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 the sort of the metaphor I think of is maybe you're in a swimming pool. You're in the 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 uh, the end where you can still walk you don't know how to swim and you're tiptoeing towards the deep end um is it logical stress i mean if if you if once you can no longer walk in the swimming pool you might drown so stress is natural in that context isn't it yeah and it, and it definitely is is contextual um but i think that the key point that i argue for in the book is that we we have these different kind of stress responses, you know, the, the typical thing, fight, flight, or freeze, when we feel that we're under threat. That one of the critical things behind upshifting is that we don't always have to automatically trigger our stress responses and move into fight, flight, or freeze. There are situations where we can reframe the experiences that we're facing to, to uh, and I, I talk about this in the context of stress mindset, threat mindsets, or challenge mindsets, where we can see potential stressors as a challenge rather than as a threat and we physiologically uh, interestingly the the software of the brain can interact with the hardware uh, of the brain and and lead to physiological changes based on what we are thinking and how we frame the problem that we're facing so all those stresses inevitable what isn't inevitable is how we deal with it and how we interpret it but some people do I think older people in particular, maybe this is an unfair generalization, but older people tend to stress out over stuff that's for many people, younger people is neither here nor there, small things, doctor's appointments. Um, to, are, are there things where it's legitimate to be stressful and others which it isn't? If you miss your doctor's appointment or you forget about something and you're stressed out, doesn't matter. But if you do something important, 
uh, as a mistake, then or, or, or you're embroiled in some sort of disaster, then it is legitimately stressful. Our thoughts and our ideas, our fear of fear is a key driver of stress. So what we think and how we think about it can interact in a kind of unrelenting vicious cycle that pushes us into being very stressed out. And clearly that point, what pushes us, will vary for different people facing different problems in different situations. So your optimal point of stress versus performance, all other things being equal, is different to mine and you'll be triggered by different things. The argument, my argument in the book is regardless of what our starting points are, we can actually learn to manage and, and reinterpret stress and cope with it better by, by, by not seeing it as a threat and by managing it in different ways. And there's, there's some really interesting, let me, let me tell you about some of the research which I've identified, um, which actually looks at how pressure can be used to advantage when doing something stressful. And so some of this was done by researchers at Harvard and they quite simple neuroscientific experiments. I never trust researchers at Harvard, Ben. Okay. I'm teasing you. I bet I always think when people rely on research, there's always something a bit dodgy, but go on. Well, um, I think, I think there's a, you've got to combine research with, um, practical perspectives and with, with policy measures. And I think that's what I try and do in Upshift. And so I, I, I use evidence throughout, but also I combine that with you know, examples, case studies, illustrations. You know, so the Harvard research was put a lot of different research, um, studies into play um, of volunteers in a whole range of different stressful situations, doing maths tests under pressure, speaking in front of strangers, and they monitored their heart rates. And they, and they gave them different ways of framing the problem um, beforehand. They, they, got a third of the group to say I feel calm as a mantra a third of the group say I feel anxious and a third say I feel excited and the excited group felt more confident and performed better than the other two um, and what they were actually doing was conjuring up a new mental context for themselves they changed one emotion of anxiety into one of excitement because they felt they were taking on a challenge rather than facing a threat now that's the research now, let's jump to another example of upshift in which I give in the book, which is Captain Sullenberger's famous example of landing flight 1549. Now, he's given hundreds and hundreds of interviews. Yeah, Sully always comes up in these kinds of books. He's always the model because he landed well, he, the plane, right? He landed right. the plane. Right. He, he, one of the things that he talks about is, you know, what, what he actually had to do. He, he had to force calm himself. That was the very first thing that he had to do, which is equivalent to what I was talking about there the kind of reframing of the problem. And he had to kind of, it's not about compartmentalise uh, the problem, it's about having the discipline to focus clearly on the task at hand. And, all the, and he talks a lot about what that required at the time, despite the fact that his body was screaming, danger, danger, danger. Um, and I think that, that, that was kind of what he described as being one of the most important things that he did that helped him successfully land that. How important is deadlines in all this, Ben? I know as, you know, I do a lot of different things. As a writer, deadlines always exist to be broken and you always put them off. So there's never that much pressure. Whereas for this kind of show, I have to deliver. And if I don't, when the show happens, then it's a, a failure. And I actually prefer doing the show to the writing and, and, and having a very concrete deadline uh, some people don't like working with deadlines. Are deadlines good in terms of turning pressure into performance? Definitely, definitely. But I think the t it depends on the you know the, the kinds of deadlines that you face. So, 
there are some situations where you might work under low levels of pressure and low levels of deadline and you have but the deadline the deadline ma matters if you also have a sense of purpose so when you have a high pressure but a low low sense of purpose you know where you're like i'm just doing this and it doesn't really matter you're kind of on a treadmill and there may have been days where you literally felt like well i'm just going to put one foot in front of the other and get it done um, and you, you'd finish your programs and you wouldn't have felt like a huge sense of satisfaction because you didn't really rise up to meet the pressure because you were on those days on a bit of a treadmill. But there would have been other days where you got up and it might have been whatever, a conversation you had with your, with your kids or something that you, the person that you were speaking to or something, but you came in and you sat down on the program and you were like, it's tough, but I'm going to do this. I'm really, and you have a sense of a mission. And those are the points where you're really, your brain's aware, you're able to connect to the ideas that are going, you're connecting to your audience, you're able to empathize. And when you hang up and you put the, put the, put the session online, you're like, yes, I smashed it. And so I think it's that sense of purpose that really enables us to turn pressure into, into performance. Yeah, you're beginning to convince me, I have to admit. Uh, and perhaps it works the other way as well guests on my show often ask whether they can have talking points and I never give them because I think it's healthy for you to perform, uh, to be under a little bit of pressure. You're never quite sure what to expect from me. I don't want to put you under ridiculous pressure, but at the same time, I think the best conversations are one where the guest is on their toes. Uh, is, is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think I mean I mean I'll be completely frank. When I I listened to some of your examples earlier on, and I thought that there are times where you are really gentle and you're very coaxing, but there are times where you're quite abrasive with your guests. You kind of push and nudge and shut. And and I thought so before I signed up, I thought right, I need to get myself into a slightly pugilistic position and be on my toes, so that when he jabs me, I can duck or I can jab back, and you know we can have fun with it. And so I, I literally thought, I need to be on my toes like a boxer for this session. Now, whether or not that's the intention of your abrasive style, I'm not sure, but that's what I wanted. To, and I'm not sure if I'm managing to stay on my toes, but, you know, I, that's specifically what I, what I felt. I wonder if there's anything, um, I mean, I'm probably naturally like that anyway, Ben, but whether there's some, something naturally unconscious knowing that the best interviews are ones where... <laughs> Um, my guest is under a little bit of pressure. So they're like you, yeah. they're, they're entering this in a, in a slightly pugilistic manner. Is that uh, how we should conduct our lives generally as bosses, as parents? Should we be wanting to put, you know, there's a, uh, you know this, you've got a 12-year-old. There's a, I think there's a fashion these days for parents not to want to stress their kids out, to create an environment where they're never stressed. And the same is true at work. Uh, should bosses and parents be in the business of, of creating, if you like, um, a, a healthy degree of stress for the people who work for them or for their children? I, I, str I, I struggle with this both in work and as a parent, because my, you know, and I, I, I doubt he'll listen to this, and, but he, he's definitely switched into the situation where he knows best as a 12 year old. He knows best about many, well, nothing changes, Ben. I promise you, right. when they get older. Right, and so my, 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 you know, and so you have to. I think the the adage for parents is we have to be able to pick your battles, 
And so there's certain things where you do actually have to say, well, look, there's standards of respect, of kindness, of love, which could go, you know, can't be compromised. You know, I don't care whether he's straight, gay, bisexual, trans. I don't care who he loves or who he doesn't love. I don't care if he wants to go up to be an ice skater or an investment banker or a, or a politician or a, or, a, or, a, or a librarian. But I think there are some basic things that he does need even to... a librarian wow but, but I'm, just, I'm just saying that you know but but i think there's certain things about the quality of the relationship where you do need to place them under certain and especially relationship and their aspirations no but he has aspirations which don't always match up to his his um commitments and you know that's the lesson that he has to learn for himself and he you know we can't i don't you, i don't think we should be pushy parents i think that can lead to other kinds of problems but being able to share your experience and knowledge in a way that is honest I think is really important in fact if that does place them under pressure and if they're on I think the worst thing parents do at the moment is create situations where their kids never actually learn so they try and they love them so much yeah and in an odd way it works both ways I know my kids are always putting me under pressure maybe children can return the favor I think I think my you know the, ten years ago when my son was three years old I was and it was actually after I wrote my first book I, I became very very overweight I think I hit almost nineteen stone my son nineteen stone wow nineteen stone so my BMI was you know, almost forty and I was you know, very very obese weren't dealing with the pressure well then my no well my son started calling me fat daddy and. Um, you know, he was only three years old and he wasn't wasn't saying it out of unkindness. He just started calling me Fat Daddy. And it was but it was enough of a catalyst in my mind. I was like, I do not want my son to see me as Fat Daddy. I don't want that to be okay. Well, for so people it. just listening to this, uh, Ben is pretty felt now. How much weight did you lose? I lost uh, something in the region of seven stone in two years. And, and I took up exercise and I started eating healthier. So I'm now, and now, nowadays I hover between kind of 13 and 13 and a half stone. But that was a very good example of my son's perceptions and communication with me, putting me And it's interesting in terms of weight, because now we have cultural movements. I don't know whether you, I'm sure you've got them in the UK too. In the US, fat, you know, people talk about fat shaming, the idea that the culture shouldn't be unkind to fat people and treat it as quote unquote normal. I'm assuming you think we should be a bit wary of some of these movements. Um, the, the, I, I, I think that fat shaming is, a, is an issue and it is a problem for me. It wasn't fat shaming. You know, my dad died of a heart attack when he was 43. I was 38 at the time and I was going in the same direction. So my son's, uh, you know, from the mouths of babes, say, uh, he wasn't fat shaming. He was just stating what he saw. But I, I realised that if I didn't change things, that I would both create a model for how he would behave. And also, I potentially wouldn't be around to see him reach my age. And, and I just, neither of those things. So that was a very visceral sense of pressure, a catalyst for me changing. And I changed a whole bunch of things at the same time. How I ate, how I exercised, my attitude towards um, food. Uh, all, of, all needed very radical shifting and changing. But it's certainly, I think the message of your book is against a kind of nanny state. It would suggest that in terms of the way in which a state treats its citizens, 
putting a little bit of pressure on them to be healthy, to exercise, not to smoke or to overeat, to work. All those aren't necessarily bad things. Positive, positive nudges and positive influences from the state, but I don't think I don't think it's the state per se. You know, there are all kinds of examples of well, schools or universities or yeah. corporations or families or all the institutions of authority that putting a little bit of pressure on on the people who are part of that well, community isn't a bad thing. But I think the reality is that we have institutions today that are designed according to principles of efficiency and effectiveness. Um, you know, they're, they're essentially, most organizations today are based on a kind of the same principles that enabled Henry Ford to d deliver any car, kind of car you like, as long as it's flat, any color car you like, as long as it's flat. So I think there's a, there's a kind of efficiency that drives organizations that assumes the more of something that they can get out, the better it is. And pressure as a result is just something that people are expected to manage. So I, I don't think that that's actually necessarily the way that we should manage it. You know, there is a stress epidemic and a pressure ep epidemic, in part because I don't think our institutions actually know how to give just a little bit of stress. Yeah, well, what do you make of Elon Musk uh, or Steve Jobs, particularly Musk, who, who's now putting his new employees at Twitter under enormous pressure? He's sleeping at the office, they're sleeping at the office, he's telling people who don't want to work in that pressure cauldron room that they should leave the company. I assume you can go over the top on this. I think a lot of people are leaving the company um, and have left the company. And I think I don't think that's necessarily the way to, to achieve success. Um, I think that... Um, Who's the model? I, I know you mentioned in the book uh, Ariana Huffington uh, and Greta Thunberg. You suggest that we can all become like Ariana and Greta if we... Upshift a bit. I'm not sure any of us really want to be like Ariana, but <laughs> what are those two models? What do they tell us? Well, they're, they're, they're particular types of upshifters, and I, gave, I give them in one part of the book. Ariana's a, a good example of a, of a connector, a networker that's able to create connections and, and forge new kinds of relationships. Greta's a good example of someone that disrupts the status quo and challenges the challenges the existing modus operandi, the way of doing things. And what I try and do in the book is argue, what I would give examples of in my research has shown is that actually there's no one way of being creative under pressure. There's lots of different ways. And so, you know, you, you might be a bit of a challenger and a, a bit of a disruptor in the way that you do things. Um, I'm definitely much more of a someone that loves to sit across different disciplines. You know, an upshift is a, is a manifestation of my desire to bridge disaster response with neuroscience and psychology and creativity. And that, that I, I, I love, I'm never happier than when I'm jumping across disciplines to try and find solutions. You know, some of the work I did in my early days of disaster response, bringing ideas from airline queuing and how queues are managed in airports into how we can better manage aid, aid distribution. So... That's my pre preference, and different people have different preferences. And part of what I do in Upshift is actually try, I try and democratize the idea of creativity by saying there's no singular way. It's not just the, the kind of Steve Jobses or the Elon Musks that we can rely on to be creative. We can look at lots of different models. Lots so different I have to admit, uh, Ben, I'm, I'm trying to be kind here, but democratizing creativity we've been hearing that for years in silicon valley and it's never true and it never will be true i mean some people will deal with this better than others and there are always going to be 
elite upshifters uh, who, who take advantage of this and make huge successes of themselves, most people won't really do it. Well, they, there's nothing naturally democratic about any of this. Um, I, I would actually push back and say I, I don't think that's actually true. I think that if, if, you, if you look at what, and this is, again, one of the lessons that I've learned in disaster response is that the people that can stand up and, and do things in the face of crisis are very seldom the people, the elites or people with high positions or people with named status. They are the emergent leaders that, that step up at the point that a crisis hits. And it's never who you think it's going to be. It's never who you think it's going to be. And, and the, you know, there's the old adage that we should never let a good crisis go to waste. And I, my, my adage in Upshift would be, in a crisis, you shouldn't let anyone go to waste. And despite everything we hear at the moment, diversity is not the problem. Yeah, it may actually be an evidence of this catastrophic uh, earthquake in Turkey, Syria, Clearly, the heroes are the people on the ground. They're certainly not the bureaucrats or politicians sitting in Damascus or, or Istanbul. In the in the in the tsunami response, which is the first disaster that I worked on back in two thousand and four, and I'd only just moved into the humanitarian sector at that point. Although I grew up in Sri Lanka, so I'd lived through humanitarian crises as a child. In the tsunami response, we identified that. Over 95% of the lives that were there to be saved were saved before international community even got off the ground by the people on local communities, neighbours, uncles. The, 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 the community, they were the people that actually did most of the life saving. And, most of, and that's not to say that the international resources shouldn't flow in, but they should be directed to the people that most need them. Uh, final question um, on all this. Uh, it's an interesting argument, upshift, turning pressure into performance and crisis into creativity. I think your life is um, being driven by moral pressure. Clearly, you're a, you know, you're a leading humanitarian. What, is, what role does morality play in all this? Uh, is there such a thing as moral pressure, pressure as opposed to other kinds of pressures? It's an interesting thing. I think moral pressure. The, the my, my my desire to work in disaster response was driven by the fact that I grew up in a war zone. I was my family were fortunate enough to leave Sri Lanka and come to the UK. We didn't come um, unblemished. You know, we still carry the, the the echoes of the war and the echoes of the disaster. Still, kind of carry on um, within our lives. They continue to reverberate in a whole range of ways. But I still feel incredibly lucky. And so I decided to work in disaster response, it, it, you know, it's quite early on in my career, because I felt I had to use that good luck to some good effect. I don't know if that's a moral pressure or not. It just felt like it, if I, I could have gone into investment banking and I, I could have stayed, uh, gone into strategy consulting, but I didn't. I moved into the humanitarian sector, and that was that was what felt right to me. Now I didn't know if that, I would call that a moral pressure so much as what felt like the you know the obvious thing to do with my good luck, my my good fortune. I think there are, there can be forms of moral pressure, but I think in the modern world they face a political context where morality is not high on the agenda, and actually being deliberately amoral is actually far better. So I, I, I worry that we're in a world that moral pressure doesn't really count for enough.